90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Hi. <laughs> Wait, you're uh, not Shannon. <laughs> no, no, I'm not Shannon. It's, uh, it's Matt. Do, how, how much of an intro do people need? Probably no one knows who I am. I mean, I think Matt's sufficient for most of our audience. We can just go ahead and stop here. Um, but no, so this is Matt Hall of Undersampled Radio and Agile and of the Agile Geoscience blog fame. Yeah, the Software Underground Universe, right. TM. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we're actually uh, working together for a couple weeks down here in Houston and thought it would be fun to record a show together. And it was also pretty hard to coordinate with Shannon since our schedule's been pretty wacky and we haven't got a chance to talk in a, in a recorded fashion in a while. No, yeah, it's be we well we just had a look and May 2016, but that was if I remember rightly that didn't go perfectly. You were in Austin with Graham Gansel at SciPy. Yes. And I wasn't. Correct. <laughs> and I, I just remember it being glitchy or something. And I think the last time before that was episode 67, so not quite 200 episodes ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is crazy to think about yeah. but I remember I remember that that chat it was a lot of fun absolutely so we've been down here doing uh, Python training and it's something that we've talked about a lot on this show because Shannon's wanting to learn Python learn things to improve her analytic skills yeah. and this is something that's not uncommon absolutely like what one of the commonest things that we hear we often, you know, go around at the beginning of the class and like listen to pe people's sort of motivations for wanting to come in and learn Python with us for a few days. And we very often hear that people have wanted to come and learn Python for a decade even, you know, years, but not really known where to start. So it's always uh, a real pleasure to, you know, get people over that, the speed bump or speed bumps at the beginning of their, their Python careers, set them off on their road. <laughs> to, to success but it, I mean it's a really hard thing to uh, to teach and I think that's something that'd be a lot of fun to talk about but I love this idea that uh, you've talked about in one of the the short courses that you teach of all the ways that people get their jobs done without using Python and and you call these things prison inventions yeah well I mean Full disclosure, I completely stole that expression from someone we had on, um, on Undersampled Radio. I might even be able to remember who it was. Um, we spoke to him earlier this year, Kyle Polich of the Data Skeptic podcast. Did you listen to that? I haven't. Okay. He was a lot of fun to talk to, especially as he had a lot to say, if I remember rightly, about Markov chains, which I was very interested in at the time. Uh, but yeah, he told me about prisoner inventions, and these are these things that um, prisoners make to get by. Often, like they're doing things like trying to boil a cup of water, light a cigarette, make a tattoo, and then some of their inventions are a little off color. Right. <laughs> um, but anyway, he he pointed me at this really great book, um, the name of which I can't remember, but it's by an artist who was incarcerated. Uh, for I think years and while he was inside made these drawings like pretty um, nice labeled annotated sketches of things that he'd seen other prisoners making and um, I, I found a copy of this book on eBay and <laughs> it, is, it is really good but it, it turns out quite a bit of it's on um, online so I can share the, the link for that in the show notes if you do do you do things like that on we, we do show notes. Don't panic. Yeah. yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, I'll make sure your listeners can, can get at the link and see some of these drawings for themselves because they're, they're, they're pretty cool. Like, it's innovation, that's for sure. Um, but the point is, while they're sort of practical and pragmatic and use the materials at hand, and they do get the job done, um, but some of them are, you know, dangerous. Uh, <laughs> Definitely not allowed in the organizations that they belong to, right. often confiscated. Um, but yeah, some of them can catch fire or hurt people uh, unintentionally. <laughs> and, you know, I think you can say the same about some rickety Excel 
prisoner inventions. I, I was going to say, when you say catch fire and unintentionally hurt people, it sounds exactly like an Excel <laughs> spreadsheet. Uh, but the thing is, <laughs> so, but someone challenged me on one occasion that, well, the whole purpose of programming is to sort of make prisoner inventions. Like, you, because you can quickly cobble together things to get, you know, to get something done here and now. Right. And so that made me sort of rethink a little bit. And, and I, I feel like making things with code is more like, um, it's like, it would be like Prisoner Inventions, but with Meccano or, or Lego or, some, or a 3D printer or something right. that was meant to make things with, right? It's actually, that is the, the purpose of it. So you can be reproducible, you can be deliberate, you can be safe and flame retardant. <laughs> You're not sharpening a toothbrush handle to make a knife. You're you're milling a nice piece of titanium for your knife blade. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, Fit for purpose. Right, and we've seen a lot of a lot of processes that could be automated or could be made simpler, or maybe could just be made more reliable by removing the the person from having to do a lot of manual data manipulation. Absolutely. Yeah. It's. Yeah, it's all of those things. Um, it isn't just about, or it's certainly not automation for automation's sake. It's, um, and it's not just about speed and efficiency, which is often sort of the first thing that people mention. It is about being able to do it again in the same way and not have a huge amount of variance, reducing the, the number of sort of random errors that you make when you're using people, being able to, um, you know, like human processes are bound to sort of change when people's roles change or um, you want to do the same thing but in a different business unit this kind of thing so um, no I think there <laughs> that it, it, I'll I tell you what, one of the things that really always surprises me um, is the gulf between what an organization sort of the organization's imagination of what people do and what their pain points are and the sort of daily reality of most people in those organizations <laughs> yeah it's it's not something that you know we need to change how our our active directory login works for for email or something like that it's the fact that we're on lockdown machines with file scanners where it takes three hours to do anything that a normal machine does and 10 minutes. Oh yeah, no. The the lengths to which IT have, uh, departments have gone to essentially ensure that nobody can invent anything with their computers, <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. So you've been organizing Python classes and hackathons for quite some time now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What... How did you approach doing that? To me, that's a very daunting task to just say, I'm going to teach you Python. Oh, yeah. No, we definitely, definitely did not start off thinking we can teach this to people. I mean, we, you know, when we, we started out, um, I mean, Agile started up in the end of 2010. Um, like, we were total noobs, Evan and I. You know, we, at best, could hack around in MATLAB. And... Um, were very very far from from teaching people and then a, as we built our skills a bit um and we took the um greg wilson's training for software carpentry you know remotely right. but in a cohort of trainers and it was fantastic like i loved that experience and I don't think we took it thinking oh yeah we're going to go out and train loads of people it was partly just a skill building thing for ourselves um, but one of the things he sort of says is, look, you don't have to be a, a master at something to train people. In fact, it, you might be a better teacher if you're not a master at it, because once you're a master, you've got all these blind spots. You can't remember how you learn things. You can't remember what it was like to not understand or know something. And so I really like this idea that people who are only just ahead of their peers can kind of reach back and pull people along a little bit right. because because you totally get where they're at. Um, I mean, I'm totally aware of that blind spot now. I feel like, you know, in some ways it is almost a decade since I was in their position and it's, 
it's hard to appreciate how you know difficult learning to code is like it's hard it is and you know making a function now is old hat but i remember a time when it wasn't and it was scary yeah absolutely i i mean i basically denied the existence of numpy for about three years ouch <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i I, I really actually think it was doing 3D seismic with Python lists that finally tipped me over the edge. And Evan, <laughs> Evan you know, bless him, was very patient with me and was just like, Matt, you, you have to start using NumPy. <laughs> like, right. this is the thing. The, 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 this is the trigger. So, um, no, it's... Uh, but everyone's got to be on their own, on their own journey. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and everybody needs different tools. And I think that's hard to teach a group of people because everybody wants to do a different problem. Some people want to process yes. strings and huge text files. Some people just want to do math. Some people need pandas and yeah. that's it, which is almost a language on its own. Yeah, yeah. We, like, I, I, don't, I, I suppose we struggle with that. We, we definitely talk often about, like, should we show them this? You know. Um, and you're right, you often want to say in the class, like, you know, you three probably don't need to hear this right now. Um, you three definitely do. Uh, but my feeling is that, and again, sometimes we do just sort of explicitly say, like, if, if you're not ready to hear this, or if this doesn't, f if you can't see how you would use this, then don't don't worry about it. Like sit back, let this bit wash over you. Like listen, you know, right. watch this. Um, and my hope is that once they've seen it, there's some point in the future where the, like the penny drops, as it were, and 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 things make sense. I mean, that's how it was. I think with me and NumPy, like I'd seen things at conferences or I'd seen YouTube videos, you know. Um, but it, the one, one day you wake up and you're like, oh, yeah, that's why I need that. Yeah. <laughs> like, it honestly takes, I mean, I think some, some things in programming, they took me 20 times to hear it before I got what, why on earth I would need it. Dictionaries were the same. Oh, yeah. I had no clue why I would need a dictionary for, <laughs> for absolutely ages. But, but I can have two lists and just go, and <laughs> yeah. it's fine. Why, why would I need that? Yeah. And I don't know, it's sort of a, it's hard to decide what to teach somebody that's new, especially when you have a limited amount of time. Mm -hmm. And it's also difficult because there are so many circular dependencies. Yes. You, to understand this, you must first understand the thing. Y yeah, that is, I mean, more and more I've started to, I think when we first designed the class, I mean, the class built up really organically. So the first time we sort of, taught as it were it, we were really just doing a boot camp to try and prepare people for a hackathon like it wasn't like here's a structured course it was like come and spend the day with us and we'll show you some stuff and you can ask questions and we didn't try to pretend it was like it, it was free right so we weren't sort of setting it up like a course but it, it, it sort of evolved and I think the first thing that involved was quite linear right we had we'd sort of planned out like trying to build a pyramid but it, like you say it's not a pyramid right. it's it's this thing that's full of circular dependencies and actually you've got to hear you know so now we actually show people numpy arrays right at the beginning and then we show them them again and then they get to see them again and then we do loops and then they see them again and then we do you know so i i think that helps cuz <laughs> cuz there's nothing right. implicitly advanced about NumPy. If anything, it's more intuitive to do math with a NumPy array than it is to try and loop and do it in a list. Right. So, you know, we've, we, yeah, I think that's, that's one of the patterns we've sort of landed on is, is introducing things sort of over and over again rather than building up to them. Okay. Yeah. I can see that because then if you miss a step in the build up, you're lost. Right. For a lot longer. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. If it's a one-way dependency tree, then potentially you're never coming back. Right. <laughs> so how do you how do you decide what 
is essential for somebody beginning in Python. I mean, everybody's got different needs and everybody has a different amount of time available to learn something. And I, I've, I've struggled over and over with what a student would find useful. Yeah. Wow. That is, re- I mean, it is really tough. Um, and everybody's so different. We, we typically have um, between, uh, I mean, I suppose typically between eight and 18 people in the class. Like we've done up to maybe 22. That's a lot. Um, I'm aiming for a sort of ratio of one, uh, one instructor to about eight students. I feel like is a good number. Um, so you try to have plenty of contact with them so that you can help each individual on their own sort of path. But I mean, one of the things we've been talking about doing recently is can we get essentially as soon as possible, get to the point where the student's making connections between their own work and the more structured parts of the class. Because I feel like if we can do that, then we can help them understand, okay, I see what you're trying to do and I see what you need. You, let's, help, let's make sure you get the bits you need and help you relax about the bits you don't need yet. So, I mean, if anything, I'm leaning towards more customized experiences so that the students are on different paths because I don't know that you can build the perfect one-size-fits-all, this is the curriculum this is the order to teach stuff in. I, I, I don't know. Like, you know, early on when, when it's a blank slate, you're like, should we teach testing? Should we teach object-oriented? Like, right from the start. Um, do you teach, where, like, when, when do you introduce NumPy? Um, when do you introduce Pandas? I mean, Pandas is almost like an application. Yeah. Right? I mean, it, I feel like if you introduce that, like we had someone come into the class, like a data scientist did the class. He was like an R guy um, in Norway. And he sort of said to us, why are you guys teaching all, like why are you teaching about dictionaries and lists? Like just show people pandas and, and plotting and that you're done. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. That feels like then we're almost just teaching a, a huge, highly abstract application that feels wrong to me yeah i mean then we're teaching a different version of excel yeah exactly yeah now i think there's some base knowledge but you also have to be careful as somebody who's more of a completionist i'm like well first we need to go over the first four c years of computer science degree yeah and then we can and then we can talk about print like no we don't want to do that either Oh, well, so it, I mean, it's so fascinating. Like, once you, like, we were chatting yesterday, I think, about how, how um, computer science concepts are actually really general thinking tools often, and scientists aren't that used to modeling problems in a way that's sort of fit for computer, for expressing them in code. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's a yeah. skill that until you've heard about um, various sort of computer science concepts, I mean, even so, a fairly simple concept like looping it, it is um, something you have to learn. Like, it's not necessarily a natural thing to think that way. Right. Well, especially when you start trying to optimize things, the computer scientists think in a totally different way. Yes. Like, well, if I can divide this into something that's a power of two number of steps, <laughs> right. and then, you know, they can think of very... Well, you Very said something. Ways. You, I mean, uh, you said something fascinating yesterday that's beyond my grasp. Really, we were talking about um, uh, so velocity modeling and depth conversion. So, I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners know that you know geologists measure things in spatial units like meters, and in geophysics, we often, uh, at least in seismology, which is my thing. Um, we're using two-way travel time because we're measuring this, these acoustic waves and um, we have to wait for them to come back so we time them and we need to reconcile those domains and the reconciliation between space and time is velocity and we were chatting about how to model this problem and one of the first things you said was well you want to do everything in slowness 
of course. <laughs> and, 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 and I was like, uh-huh, because we often do use slowness. In fact, the log we measure, quote-unquote, velocity with is a slowness log, actually. Right, so DT log. DT log. So it's time differences measured at equal depth intervals, uh, but it's one over velocity. Right. And I'm like, why do you want to do everything slowness? And you said... Because our multiplication is faster than division. Right. And then it's cumulative sum. But this would never occur to us. <laughs> I think most geoscientists would, would never think about things that way. So, the, the, again, there's this dependent education right. that's hard to teach. You can't teach linearly, basically. No. And especially when you've got somebody that's got a complex problem and they want to solve it. That, well, you can solve it in a less good way right. with a basic set of knowledge. You can solve it in a more good way with some more advanced training. Or you can solve it in the optimal way after a master's program in software design. Right. And where in that spot, in the end, you're trying to solve your problem. You're trying to make profit. You're trying to do some end goal that's probably not design the optimal piece of software. So where on that, and I, I have trouble with that all the time. Yeah, right. It's a, it's a trade-off, isn't it? Um, yeah, I like. It, anyway, it's it's sort of a fascinating uh, endeavor. Like I've really got a lot out of teaching. I, I often say to people, like, even you know, as you're learning, even if you have an opportunity to teach, and you're at all inclined to. I think it's one of the best things you can do for developing yourself. Like, yeah. do, you, do you feel like you've, it's up to your skill level? I, I think so, because you, you, one, you have to know everything. And then two, somebody's always going to ask you a question you don't know, mm. and you learn something along with them. Yeah. I don't know how many times during hackathons or teaching, somebody said, well, how can I do this? I said, well, you know, Hit a dot and then tab, and let's look through the list of functions that are available, or the list of methods, and we find something. So, well, how do I use it? I don't know. Let's, let's read the documentation together, yeah. and I learn with them. Yeah, but I think also that process is, you know, there's so many opportunities while you're teaching to essentially, um, you know, teach by example, right? You model the behavior you're trying to to teach so it's like well here's how i'd figure this out because i don't because you know i don't know i've never heard of that function or i've never thought of that workflow um here's what i would do and it's you know uh, uh, you, it takes a level of i suppose confidence or something i don't know um experience maybe as a teacher to jump off like that, to go off piste basically, and say, "Yeah, let's figure this out together." And occasionally it goes horribly wrong, and you really have to just go, "Look, I'm sorry, this did not go where I thought it was going to go. I'll figure it out in the break." Right. Um, and and just sort of ask for forgiveness. But I think, that although they feel like um, tangents or you know digressions, they're actually some of the most important parts of the class. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, we said that during the mastery class that we taught this week of please stop us and ask questions because that's where we're all going to learn something interesting. That's right. Or in, you know, the case of part of testing, uh, we all, it, it was the watch me struggle for 15 minutes to figure out what very basic thing I've overlooked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, no, it's super instructive. Like Evan calls it mistaking. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and being visible in your mistakes and letting the class catch them. Um, I mean, I don't want to say necessarily making mistakes on purpose. That could look a bit contrived. Right. But um, not being embarrassed by them or sort of trying to cover them up or, you know, actually exploiting them and saying, no, yeah, like, well spotted. Um, right. Yeah, I, I love those opportunities. Actually, um Occasionally you go look at, you know, other people's... Because one of the amazing things about teaching these days is the amount of material out there that's 
being freely uh, shared by people is remarkable. And you know, I occasionally go look at look at this just to make sure that I'm with producing reasonable material and so on. And um, and it's but and some people clearly, you know, people with tons of experience and. Um, who are professional teachers, professors and so on, produce incredible, but basically textbook sort of material. Um, but actually we don't teach with, with much stuff like that because we write a lot of code in the class spontaneously so there actually is almost no material. <laughs> yeah. At least it's full of blank cells essentially. Our, our notebooks are sort of only about 40% populated. Yeah, and I mean, it makes makes your learners be engaged because it's not a slide deck that they can always go back to. Yeah, well, that makes some of them panic, though. True. <laughs> you mean there's no PowerPoint for the next three days? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and uh, that it can be a sort of source of stress, actually, and so we do struggle a little bit with, like, okay, you don't have to type everything I'm typing. Some of this is just to illustrate a point or try something and it, it is it is fascinating working beginners and I, re I really remember some of those behaviors like never wanting to delete anything right you know you just can't press delete on your code so you comment everything out save it for later <laughs> you never know it's right. like no but it gave you a syntax error <laughs> like, <laughs> you definitely don't need it yeah it's like occasionally talk to software developers and they um you know, get an almost perverse pleasure out of deleting their code. Yeah. Because there's less things you have to test and maintain. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but that's that's a weird concept to to a lot of people, right? It's sort of a weird anti-productivity. Yeah. How much code did you write today? Oh, about minus 200 lines. <laughs> it was a good day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that is hard. And uh, yeah, people don't want to delete code. They want to copy verbatim mm -hmm. exactly without necessarily understanding sometimes. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I find difficult is it's so much, I mean, it's drinking from a fire hose mm -hmm. when you're learning something new like this. You're learning another language, another syntax. You're, you're learning how to communicate with something that's totally alien. And uh, by the end of even a one day of instruction, the brain of your learner is just melted yeah to the point where when you say something confusing like you want them to use the uh, the type function to determine what the type of variable is and you say okay type type <laughs> right like that sentence doesn't parse uh, just because it's it's a lot of difficult concepts in such a short amount of time yeah I mean it is like learning a, I mean it, you are literally learning a language you know um <laughs> I've been occasionally sort of asked, you know, when you a new client sort of says, "Hey, can you help us help our people learn learn Python? Um, what should we like? How would you do that? What should you do? Uh, or propose something?" I'm like, "Oh well, I mean, if we can propose anything, then I would probably say you need sort of half a day of instruction once a week." for eight weeks every year right. for eight years <laughs> like i feel like that's probably yeah. the ideal way to consume a, a course but that's not what you get right it's that's very difficult to schedule and it'll be a lot of travel uh yeah. you know i live on the east coast of canada so there's not, not too many clients i can sort of service from there unless we did something online which is a whole other topic right um but assuming we're we're coming and, and sitting with people, which I I do prefer, um, what you end up with usually is like three days or five days, and then that's it. <laughs> and I, I so I, I it's not ideal, right? It's way too much all at once, um, and it would be like eating all of your meals for a week, you know, on Tuesday. <laughs> and, right. <laughs> um, but it's but it's what you get. So, it, um, you know, unfortunately, that sort of puts quite a bit of onus on the 
learner to sort of know themselves like I've heard enough for today I'm going to just let just listen for now or you know not exhaust myself but of course they don't know which bits they can tune in out of right well I mean you've got your company has trained a lot of people now Uh, Mm. so, so do you have some sort of sense after training that many people do you have some sort of distribution from doing this you know how many of these people keep using python how many of these people tuned out after lunch on day one (laughs) that kind of thing yeah i mean that's that's really really tricky i don't really have a lot of data to offer you um yeah we've had over a thousand people now through uh the classes that we've done um which i find massively exciting like just to think of that many geoscientists I mean, we certainly didn't teach all of them from scratch. Many of them had some experience already. But, I mean, the, the hundreds of new geoscientists doing stuff with, with Python, which I, I just find really um, exciting for, the, you know, what, what we're going to see over the next kind of few years. Um, but uh, one of the things that struck me about essentially every class is no matter how even no matter how small it is even you know occasionally we'll have like five people we'll we'll just have one instructor in there with five people for a week um there's a massive range of everything everything's (laughs) everything's the fullest distribution it can be right you know (laughs) you have every kind of learner people typing with every number of fingers between one and ten right there's people um with every amount of experience i mean we've had Occasionally we'll do a class and we'll go around and meet everybody and there's a person in the front row who's like, I'm a professional Java developer with 20 years of experience. <laughs> and then there's, you know, someone else who's like, I'm afraid of computers, essentially, right. sitting next to them. Um, and everything's like that. So it, it, it really is, that's part of the fun of it, um, but it is also one of the things that makes coming up with a curriculum or um, almost doing anything structured quite a challenge right um, what what's really cool though is that many of these organizations and this goes as much for the you know um, oil and gas companies that we've been teaching in academic institutions service companies uh, government there's a new since about 2000 well, since this sort of latest fad, if you like, for digital transformation and digital science, um, there's a there's been a huge change in the amount of patience these organisations have for people adopting these new patterns and skills. Like, I I really feel like there's this there's this awakening and sort of realization that no actually we have to get good at this so there's a cost to it in terms of training people you know people maybe slowing down a little bit in their productivity while they learn a new skill and so on but that's what needs to happen now and so i like if you know i always say to the people in our class is like take this opportunity and use this fad <laughs> like use right. this window of patience to your advantage like this is a skill that will serve you for the rest of your career so this is more of a mind shift from the let's go find a commercial tool that almost solves this problem but not quite but good enough yes to the let's just build exactly what we need right now with you know bamboo and bailing twine <laughs> yeah i mean i think like in my in my mind there's a there's an awesome universe where you can have both of those things okay like I, and and i i think there hasn't been enough pressure on software companies to produce tools that have apis and are combinable right and partly partly just through sort of um, well, why would we need that? Like, I don't, you know, I don't value if if no one in your organization can code. Um, 
then you, you don't value those things and customers don't ask for them. But I mean, every single week, pretty much, I hear about some new tool that's got a Python interface now. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's definitely changed. And so it's, it, that seems to have flipped and now it's suddenly, it's not a niche thing, it's actually a must have feature um, to have an API or have a scripting uh, environment in your, in your, you know, Uber desktop application <laughs> that does all the things, but not quite all the things. Right. So in this, this recent trend over the last few years, have you seen the, the demand for the training growing pretty substantially? Yeah, I mean, well, because like we've always been largely connected with the oil and gas industry, so there was obviously a big downturn, 2015, 2016, right. and a lot of people were let go um, in that period. And I, I mentioned that specifically because it's that. So you know, there's, so there were two compounded effects basically in about 2017 um, of the industry waking back up again and going, oh, actually we haven't trained anybody for two years, three years, uh, we haven't valued professional development, let's start training people. Plus, while they were asleep, there was this gigantic revolution of machine learning and you know, this sort of stuff happening out in the world that they're suddenly behind on. Um, and the people who were still left in these organizations sort of realized I, I need these skills as a sort of insurance policy right. to, to be marketable. And I mean, we, you know, we all know that the petroleum industry will go away soon, so it needs to go away soon. And, so, and people are starting to think like that's suddenly become a really palpable, pressing need to, to have some transferable skills. So all of that compounded means that, yeah, we saw like, our hackathons were ticking along at like 15 to 20 people would come to our hackathons. And then 2017, we had two hackathons and both of them sold out and we had 65 people at them. And this year we've done 10 hackathons and all of them have dozens of dozens of people in them. And, uh, you know, we've, we've just trained our 500th person, person like this year, you know. So, I mean, it, 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 something's happening. So, so half the training volume over the last four years has been this year. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's definition exponential. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, we're, we're a very small company with, um, you know, four scientists plus um, a, a network of people like yourself, John, who have been helping us with training um, in various parts around the world. And, um, and, that, and that's just our experience as this sort of tiny company. So, I mean... The the level of interest is 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 huge, and like I say, many people are coming at it saying, "Yeah, I've wanted to do this for years, but didn't know how to start." So it, it's finally happening, kind of thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> this latent uh, this latent revolution has actually been triggered. Well, and the coolest thing working with you and with the people that work for you and and the contractors that work with you is that, and I say this in the, the most loving way, you're all giant nerds. And the people that we work with are all giant nerds. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun yeah, uh, because good. it's, it's good, good problems, good people wanting to do good things uh, and hungry for the tools to do it. Totally, yeah. I mean, and, and, and what I really enjoy is almost every engagement we have um, whether it's a, a hackathon or just working with people in the classroom or even them just asking questions in the break uh, you know you there are these problems out there that you've never thought about and you, you know you listen even just for a few minutes many of these problems are very succinctly described right um, like for example we recently worked with a geophysical company that does a lot of work on railways they collect lidar data and would like to automatically detect, say, the overhead cable on a train line from the LiDAR data. Okay. So, I mean, that's very easy to describe that problem. And you're like, huh, I never would have thought about that. And you sort of think about, of course, your first, if you're a true nerd, your first response is to try and solve the problem. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you do that for a bit and go, 
yeah, it's actually really hard. <laughs> um, and then you Google it. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> and, and then you discover that there's like a journal on it. <laughs> and that there's actually like this whole sort of subculture or uh, subfield of, um, in this case, it turned out to be, because LiDAR data is a point cloud, right? It's not this sort of discretized data that we often collect in uh, subsurface. It's this arbitrarily sampled 3D space right. um, in a point cloud. And so you can't do something like convolution, which you would often want to do in a neural network in order to recognize patterns in space. Um, you know, your classic kind of convolution works in a discrete space where you define a little kernel that's like a little window right. and you move it o across your big raster or whatever and um, uh, find new aspects of the data. We can't do that with points, but it turns out someone's invented a, a point-based convolutional method and there's a whole field of research there just sort of waiting to be discovered. I lo like, I love that. Yeah. Every single door like that is just this sort of, you know, it's like Alice falling down the rabbit hole. Right. And there's all these tiny doors at the bottom of the hole, and each one leads to somewhere crazy. That you could spend your career at. That you could 100% spend your career on, get a PhD in. Right. And yeah. Like, I love that. That's what I love about science. Yeah, I can't <laughs> remember what it was during the... Uh the mastery course that we taught, but somebody had asked a question. And I said, that's an excellent question, and I'm sure there are four or five PhD candidates working on it at this very moment. <laughs> yeah, but but the, but the truly awesome thing is that there probably isn't. Right. Right? And, the, and, and but, the, but there should be. Right. Like, that's that, that's one of the things we've, we've found over and over again in hackathons. It's like, wow, this is actually a really tricky problem. And I'm not sure that anyone's working on this. Like you say, maybe there is. Um, but it's, yeah, there's so much, like right now, I've never felt more sort of energized about my career as I do now. Like okay. I, it really, the, the, the last few years have been so um, unexpected really, because I never particularly thought of myself as an especially quantitative person. Um, but actually a lot of these things turn out to be quite accessible these days because there's so much open source software you can actually play with a lot of concepts that you don't need really sort of vague like i i hadn't like 10 years ago i had absolutely no idea how to play with something like a neural network and now there's a bazillion videos on youtube free software everywhere you can go and run stuff it doesn't even have to run on your computer it's in the cloud etc etc and um that's yeah that's a that's a new thing yeah um it's an intimidating but freeing thing yeah <laughs> and, uh, well i i suppose it yeah i don't know is it more intimidating now that you can do it because because when will i get that time and yeah you know well, we were talking the other night about I, I've got a folder that could keep me busy until I retire oh. of things that I would love to go learn about, try, do. And do you think this is, I mean, open source software has undoubtedly played a huge role in this happening. Mm. Do you think it's solely that? Do you think it's the fact that we're able to collect more data now because of storage improvements, because of sensing improvements? Is it all of these things coming together at sort of the right time? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, it's yeah, it's a bunch of things, right? I think there's all this data, and you can have it. <laughs> like a lot of it's open, or enough of it's open, yeah, um, or scrapable, or you know, there's tons of computers, big ones, lots of them. You can rent them. You don't even have to buy them. You can try them out. Yeah. There's a community that's connected and wants to share things and talk about things and show off and experiment and whatever that largely is connected through the internet, which it has been for years and years. I mean, we've had Usenet and stuff like that for years and years. Yeah. But this is, 
the, 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 there's so many people now there in those communities. Like, it's not just the 30 nerds, it's the 3,000 nerds. Yeah. Um, there's the open source software. I mean, look at look, TensorFlow and PyTorch, these deep learning frameworks from a, an advertising company <laughs> and how would you describe Facebook? A data collection company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it's an advertising company. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but it's not where you'd expect. I mean, look at the big players in, in machine learning. They're a taxi company. Yeah. <laughs> like a, a bedroom rental company, Airbnb. Right. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, and, and Google. Like, it's really odd. If, you, if you'd said that 20 years ago, no one would have understood what on earth you were talking about. Oh, yeah, no, the PhDs in mathematics, yeah, they're going to go and work for a taxi company and uh, an advertising agency. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's very true. So, uh, so all those, so yeah, so TensorFlow, PyTorch, you know, they were only open sourced in, like, I think TensorFlow was open sourced in 2015, four years ago. And it's cutting edge industry slash research grade the best quality software you can have and it's completely free so i mean that is that's remarkable i mean even scientists like i, I sometimes rag on scientists or especially academics because they're <laughs> like they're like oh, we're all about the science but actually they're massively competitive and secretive and all about the scoop is what they're all about right um, but these companies are actually just chucking stuff out there as fast as they can. And um, plus putting out amazing, you know, here's some software. Here's also 30 tutorials and a whole bunch of like test data sets and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, it's, it's all of the above, I think. Well, the value's not in the data anymore. Like, data's cheap. Know. Yeah, I mean, but the, like, I think sort of. But I mean, look at why Google and Facebook can release their software is because you don't have their data and you never will. Right. So the, you know, they're, they're, that's I mean, partly because it's it would be illegal, um, but right. <laughs> also also just um, because that's their value is par partly in the data and partly in the volume of compute that they have. But it almost seems flipped on its head for something like a seismic survey. Right, I, you know, I agree. Like you wouldn't want to give away your super secret processing algorithm, but but here's a petabyte of traces. Knock right. yourself out. Y yeah, yeah. I mean, um, d it's d it's more about the insights than it's about the data itself. Yeah, I I, I don't know what to you know. To me, open data feels like an, an easy choice, yeah. Um, but it's actually incredibly hard work, and even companies that you know say they want to do open things, it is still really difficult for them to actually act. Um, well, we're all trying to learn about the same system, so even if my data is in an area where you don't have a lease to go do do drilling, it can help you understand the geology of that area. It can help you understand your your data, your survey, your lease. Right. And if that was done in a reciprocal fashion, that'd be great. But yeah, that's hard to do. Right. Well, one of the I think one of the interesting things about um, machine learning in general, maybe perhaps particularly deep learning, although perhaps it's just just all of machine learning, is that we have this um, way to learn from data but abstract the learning into this model that means that I can actually share the insight part of it without sharing the data okay yeah so so I'm, I'm kind of interested to see if that I suppose in a way the the sort of behaviors people adopt will tell us which one of those they value the most <laughs> right because right. like what what will become the 
will we see data companies shift to being more about insights? Will, in other words, will models be worth more than data? Um, so is the is the PCA or the the abstraction away from the data of the general concepts the most valuable thing? Yeah, sort of. I mean, yeah. It, it's gonna it's gonna be really interesting. The next few years are gonna be are gonna be really interesting because m- I think many of the things that people are uncomfortable with um, around things like machine learning and saying, you know, for example, is it okay if a service company trains on my proprietary data? And I think some people then initially their sort of intuitive reaction is that they're a bit uncomfortable with that right but they've been okay with humans learning from their proprietary data forever in fact i want the seismic processing um fellow at your company to have learned from my competitors data experiences and apply them to my data right that's kind of the whole point yeah (laughs) But, but for some reason if it's an ai I th- my my feeling from talking to people is that folks are a little bit uncomfortable with that concept. And I don't know really what the difference is. I think we have to look at that those sorts of questions. We're going to have to answer those sorts of questions and figure it out. Right, because no matter what piece of paper you sign, it's very hard to remove a chunk of your brain <laughs> oh, yeah, that, yeah, that totally. knows how to do something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, it, like I say, I think you know, in a way, we have to sort of push the boundaries, keep asking those questions, and see what sort of behaviours emerge. There's for sure there's going to be opportunities that people haven't thought of yet. You know, in terms of starting new companies or finding new ways to do consulting or um, finding new values for data that you already have. Um, so I think that's going to be. That's going to be fun. Some comp- some data owners are definitely moving faster than others. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, but before we move to the sort of the, the favorite segment of the show that everybody has, was there anything else <laughs> about uh, about teaching Python that you wanted to make sure that we chatted about? Um, yeah, there were like twenty or thirty other topics that I wanted to talk about, but maybe. <laughs> Maybe we don't need to talk about them right now. I mean, um, I, w- I don't know if maybe we could start a conversation on Slack or something. There is actually a hash, what do you call it, a channel on the Software Underground. Um, on It's called Teaching. I don't know if you've been in there yet. I, I joined it today. Okay. Yeah. So there's a teaching channel on Software Underground, um, which is a Slack that I'm sure your listeners are aware of, softwareunderground.org. Um, TM. T- TM, absolutely. So I, my hope is that we get some interesting materials, stories, ideas for not just coding, but um, you know, teaching all those other subjects like geology, that one. Yeah, that one that we tend to do some of. Yeah, and I'm, sedimentology. And I'm also like, there are people out there like Brian Romans comes to mind because uh, I know that it's um, not. He's not totally comfortable in the digital space. He's obviously totally comfortable in the geology space. Right. Who, but who are trying to, you know, meet somewhere in the middle and teach geology with like hand in hand with some digital skills to their students. And I, you know, instead of just sort of saying, oh yeah, all students must go do this class in the computer science department. And it's like learning Python 101. Um, I'm really interested to hear about people actually making some effort to teach geoscience in a digital way, um, sort of from first principles. So um, I really hope some of those conversations emerge on there. Yeah, and you know, we, at the end of every show, always tell you to to go join Software Underground. So if you haven't done it yet, go do it. <laughs> yes, uh, please. <laughs> but with that, I think it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. So I've got the, uh, the listener, Tim, carbon fiber, TSA-approved travel cowbell. 
uh, with me on this trip. And uh, instead of having a specific paper, I thought that we could just talk about something that we've read recently in the in the academic or semi-academic literature that uh, we thought was pretty pretty neat. So, so what have you been reading recently? Well, um, the the academic literature that I read is Twitter, All right. uh, <laughs> and um, I don't know this this uh, chap, Michael Annenberg. Experimental Petrologist in Canberra, Australia. And I quite enjoy his Twitter. His handle is Manenbu, M-A-N-E-N-B-U. Um, anyway, he, he's another anti-rainbow color map nut like me. And, so, yep, yep. so we occasionally meet each other in, uh, in rants on there. But anyway, he, he, shared, <laughs> he shared a paper recently from Geoscience Frontiers. Now, it's not a new paper. It's from... Actually, it looks like it was published online in um, 2017 or maybe even 2016. But it's it's not a good paper. Okay. <laughs> does, this, does this count as something? Yeah. <laughs> but there's been quite a lot of Twitter chat about it. Um, and I just wanted to read, actually, really just the first sentence, because I think that says everything you need to know about it. All right, let's hear it. The paper is entitled, The Possible Source of the Causal Time Arrow in geohistorical explanations. Okay. I just want to make it clear, I am not attempting to make fun of this author. Okay. Others maybe. Um, <laughs> the, the abstract begins, my argument in this article will be that nature in general and human nature in particular suggests that, in principle, it is possible to derive the causal time arrow from several physical time arrows existing in nature and appearing to be unidirectional and irreversible phenomena. So, I, I mean, I think after hearing that, most people are going to be pretty excited to read this paper. Uh, so we can certainly share the, the, uh, the DOI on the, the, the notes for this show. But... Um, the, the paper really just goes on to, to sort of develop that theme that I think is, is pretty obvious from that first sentence. Yeah. It's basically impenetrable and quite um, some quite interesting little, like this statement that Michael picks on. The assumption of a causal time arrow in geohistorical explanations apparently originates in geohistorical time arrows. This... <laughs> Almost seems like an AI generated. Uh, that was my. That was exactly my thought. Was that this is a troll, generated by AI and submitted to the journal, journal to test its sort of veracity and peer review process. So anyway, uh, like, here's to good writing. All right. What have you read? Clear writing. Uh, so let's see. The well, one of the papers that I've read recently is. Uh, a review of wind noise reduction methodologies by Walker and Headland. And so this talks about how we can combat wind noise and infrasonic measurements. Okay. Well, wind noise is a big problem in uh, surface seismic measurements of like for reflection seismic too. Yeah, I mean so the wind vibrates trees and you get a lot of noise coupled into the ground. Mm -hmm. And for infrasonics, we're looking at low frequency kind of tenth of a pascal amplitude variations in atmospheric pressure for these pressure waves that travel and get ducted and all kinds of weird things just like in the ground but in the atmosphere hmm. uh, in temperature inversions produce acoustic impedance contrasts in the atmosphere just like they do in the ground right so you get reflections and trapped waves and thin layers and all kinds of weird phenomena for these kind of hundred second to tens of hertz period things right um that's really interesting i actually just read something about noise in uh, marine seismic and the authors were suggesting that that's been massively misunderstood and that the yeah that a lot of the noise was that was thought to be coming from surface waves and things like this was actually purely coming from the um flow directly around the cable. Um, so, I mean... Uh, so, like a, a decoupling turbulent flow? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. So, um, yeah. Interesting. 
So what, how are people attenuating this sort of noise? Uh, quite a few different techniques, as it turns out. Uh, oddly enough, most of them have never really been evaluated. It's sort of a cargo cult culture of, we tried this and we think it made our data look better, so that's what we've done for the last 20 years. Oh, right, okay. Uh, so there is some, uh, they call them rosettes. They're really PVC monstrosities. Hmm. with your microphone at the center and lots of long legs hmm. uh, coming off in every direction with a bit of a sponge stuffed in the end. Hmm. Uh, thinking that it gives you a an azimuthal average. Okay. Uh, oh, I see. To try and sort of cancel, essentially. Right. Um, there's been all kinds of like flexible tubing and pie plates. Uh, my favorite, and actually one of the most popular ones, is taking a soaker hose, you know, one of like the porous hoses that kind of uses water under <laughs> yeah. the garden, um, hooking that to the end of your infrasound sensor. So you put your microphone in an airtight container, you hook the end of a soaker hose to it, and you spiral it out in an Archimedes spiral uh, to get this azimuthal average. Right. And, and the thing about the Archimedes spiral is it's non-self-similar, is that the...? Right. Yeah. So like anti-aliasing built in. Right, which is, I love that. Uh, but the response of it had never been characterized. Huh. So we're like, well, it makes the wind noise worse, but we how don't really you... know what the instrument response is. Yeah, yeah, so, but how would you do that? How would you model that? I, I think you have to model it with some sort of very detailed and expensive FEA model. Because we can't generate hundred second period large infrasonic oh, waves yeah right easily hmm. um, I mean we, we do with explosions and large factories and that kind of thing but so what so so basically the the <laughs> sorry the furry sheath that uh, the people use for wind noise on a microphone yeah is not cutting it for infrasound is that is that the the idea because that seems super effective like it's amazing how much noise that attenuates it's really effective when you compare the link scale of the wind furry sheath to the link scale of an acoustic wave that we hear right but okay. we have to scale that up a lot for infrasound yeah okay so the the thing with all the arms is basically the scaled version of the furry sheath right right yeah <laughs> uh then they've done. They built a wind baffle around a set of infrasound sensors here that was 14 meters in diameter. <laughs> I mean, it's this huge. Yeah. Uh, and it worked really well, but that's not very practical. And you know, one of the main uses of these infrasound sensors, uh, one of the main operators of these networks, are people like Department of Defense, hmm. who are trying to monitor for illegal nuclear testing and things like that. Okay. This is a good way to to help verify that in addition to seismic because you know, if you're looking for an explosion in seismic sure your your mb mw curve is a little off for an explosion but it's not definitive hmm. and these infrasound waves can would they travel from north korea to say north america oh yeah yeah wow yeah when the russian uh, meteorite exploded the Chelnibinsk. Sorry to anybody that knows Russian. Bless you. Yeah. Uh, well, when that exploded over Russia several years ago, like 2012, 13, somewhere the, in there. The, the dash cam meteorite? Right. Is that the one? Uh, you could watch those infrasound waves propagate all the way around the world. Wow, that's cool. Uh, so this is a really... Uh, it's quite lengthy. But uh, so yeah, forty-two pages. <laughs> okay, wow, um, that is a long paper. But, this is a review paper, essentially, is it? Uh, there's some original work in it as well. Okay. But yeah, review of methodologies. Plus, we're going to look at some some new ways. Uh, the coolest thing, though, was uh, you know what works really well? Not a microphone. Hmm. Uh, so you take a fiber optic cable and bury it in some gravel, and pressure changes deform the fiber optic cable and. Yeah, that works pretty well. <laughs> now, is that the sort of thing that someone set out to discover or that they found by accident? It, it really sounds like something that a telecommunications engineer yeah. said, what is this noise? Definitely. Somebody else said, that noise is my signal. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, right. Can I have it back? Right. 
but fiber optics are becoming such a huge deal yeah in sensing in all aspects of geophysics right yeah no i mean when um when i was working in uh, northern alberta so this, so this would have been 10 well 15 years ago there was just this sudden realization really sort of swept through the field <laughs> literally um the all these fiber optics that they put in place for completely disparate purposes were actually like you'd already instrumented everything you needed for i think they were put there for temperature sensing okay yeah. um but that you basically had this geophone network or acoustic sensor um in place and yeah the physics of that is fascinating but yeah a topic for another time but i would that's that's something i'd love to see sort of modeled in software i've never tried anything like that but it'd be fun yeah so here's something to add to your list of yeah great. things Thanks. to go things to go look at uh, jones calculus okay so you can describe light by its its polarization okay. uh, with these matrices and so you have these matrices that represent different things in your optical system like a fiber or a filter or a polarizer and you multiply these matrices and it ends up describing the state of the light how it's modified as it goes through the system that's yeah okay it's, it's I, really amazing that sounds really cool <laughs> it also sounds scary but awesome yeah yeah uh maths maths it's good <laughs> <laughs> i think that's uh, that's the title right there uh <laughs> maths it's good so uh with that thanks for recording with me in in place of shannon well thank you for having me on the show it's been a fun chat as yes. always and, and we'll do it again uh, but in the meantime if you want to find us we're don'tpanicgeocast.com at don'tpanicgeo on twitter I'm at geo underscore Lehman and Matt is at quinkunks but spelt the Polish way I think you're going to have to be more specific <laughs> <laughs> well you know what a quinkunks is it's a Galton board okay spelt with a Q Anyway, uh, <laughs> do I, you really want me to spell K W I N K U N K S? All right. Quinkunks. <laughs> and they are under sampled radio in your favorite podcatcher, Twitter. And you can find all of us nerds hanging out on the software underground. You bet. And we'll see you there. Bye. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.